invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. And by way of reminder, we are in what is called the Farewell Discourse. This is the lengthy teaching that took place by Jesus with his disciples after the initiation or the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. He had gathered with them in the upper room. He had washed their feet. He had told them of his impending departure. He had told them that he was going to die. He had told them that one of them would betray him, that Peter was going to deny him. He began to teach what it meant to love him and how that is to be lived out in the lives of those who call him Savior. And that is one of the recurring themes throughout the discourse that actually runs all the way through the end of chapter 16, is what does the life of a disciple really look like? And so in our focus last week, as we turned our attention to John 15, verses 1 through 6, we began to look at what Jesus began to teach his disciples about this process or this thing called bearing fruit. Now, the intent was to get further than verse 6. Let me give you a very brief summary to kind of catch your mind up to where we left off. And we're going to go all the way into verse 11 today to finish out this little theme within the greater theme of the discourse. So we learned last week that there are three characters that are portrayed in this parable, if you will, this allegory of bearing fruit. There is Jesus who is the vine. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and the final I am statement that Jesus gives in the book of John. It is that ego am I, it is this statement that Jesus makes about himself where he declares himself to be equal with God, to be deity like God as he is the bread of life, as he is the, um, the, the good shepherd, as he is the living water. Jesus is the true vine. Now the vine is something that was communicated to Israel by God way back in the Old Testament days where he said, I planted you as a choice vine. But the nation of Israel as a vine was unfaithful to him and was unfruitful in their lives before him. And this is why Jesus said, I am the true vine, one that is truthful, one that is fruitful, not a counterfeit, but he is the one true vine. Secondly, we see the father. The father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And he has two main responsibilities. He purges, and he purges those branches that are artificially connected to the vine. And what that means is that there are always going to be people who artificially connect themselves to Jesus or to Christianity or to spirituality or to some other thing. But God the Father knows the truth, He knows their heart, and He is the one who judges who is the faithful branch and the fruitful branch and those who are not. So as a part of God's function as the gardener, He purges those who are not true true branches. The second thing He does is He prunes those who are. Verse 2 says, And every branch that bears fruit, Jesus speaking, He the Father prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. Now, as a Christian, as a child of God, it is the Father's purpose, it is the Father's mission, that all of us who are attached to the vine, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, bear fruit. It's not an either-or option. We either bear fruit, and therefore prove that we are believers, or we don't bear fruit and therefore prove that we are artificially connected to Jesus. Primarily, the Father is going to prune us with His Word. There is this light of illumination that comes into our lives as we read God's Word and we believe with all of our heart that this is the eternal God speaking to me today. His Word is infallible, it is inerrant, it is eternal, it is truth for me. It is God's desire that His Word is what prunes us from a worldly life, from a worldly attitude, from a worldly perspective, and shifts us into one that is devoted to living out our life as an obedient follower follower of Jesus Christ. Now he says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This indicates their salvation. And as we think about this, this indicates our ongoing sanctification as His children. As God designs to have fruit born through our lives, it is His purpose to make us more and more like Christ so that we don't bear just a little bit of fruit, but that we bear much 
fruit. When we fail to be pruned through the illumination of God's word, then he will prune us with hardship. If we refuse to cooperate with the purpose of God pruning away from us these worldly things because it interferes with our ability to bear fruit, then God will prune us with hardship, with suffering, and with pain, and with difficulty. Now some of that comes because we live in this world under the curse of the fall, but sometimes this difficulty and this hardship comes because we are at our hearts rebellious and sinful and selfish and unwilling. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to continue to push us and mold us and shape us and drive us into cooperating with God's eternal plan to make us more and more like Christ. Well, the third character is mankind represented by the branches. So we know that there are false branches that are going to be purged away, and there are true branches that are going to be pruned so that you and I can bear more fruit. So there's two key characteristics of a true branch. One, it bears fruit. What that means is that our lives are going to bear fruit in terms of spiritual character, who we are. Who were we prior to Christ? Were we carousers? Were we liars? Were we cheaters? Were we thieves? Were we insolent? Were we arrogant? What were we before we came to Christ? Well, the process of the Holy Spirit working in our life is to bear fruit through our lives. And one of the ways that He does that is He produces spiritual character. It changes who we are. Not just in a spiritual, positional level, but in an actual, practical level so that we don't look and think and act like we used to prior to coming to Christ. Second part of that is not only spiritual character is born into our life, but spiritual conduct affecting what we do with our lives. Now, the second characteristic of a true branch is it remains in Christ. It doesn't fall away through hard times. It doesn't shrink back when the commitment gets difficult. It doesn't love Christ for a little while and then run away and then come back and run away and come back and run away. We are to remain in Christ. Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in Me, remain in Me, and I in you. To abide simply means that we stay connected to the vine. We're connected to His words through obedience. We're connected to His love in this intimate personal relationship that He allows us to have. So remaining connected to the vine means that we live with an openness to God. We're willing to confess and repent of our sin. We're willing to seek forgiveness when we're wrong. We don't live in continual sin. We are being purged from that life of sin. We fellowship with God in His Word and in prayer. We spend time in His presence and we desire to serve Him as we live our lives. We surrender to His will as opposed to running away from it like Jonah did. We stop and we stand and we say, Here am I, Lord. Speak to me. I am Your servant. I will do what You ask me to do. Well, verses 4 and 5 say this, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if you and I are going to see fruit born through our lives, then we must remain connected to the vine. There is no source of life, there is no spiritual power if we are not connected to the vine or if we are not remaining in that love relationship expressed through obedience. Second group of branches are the false branches, and Jesus tells us that the Father is going to remove them and is going to burn them up. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, let me repeat this. This is not someone who has lost their salvation. This is not someone who has not borne enough fruit and therefore loses the gift of salvation. That's not what it's talking about at all. This is somebody who has artificially connected themselves to Jesus 
through some artificial means, something other than a commitment to Him through His sacrificial death on the cross. Our world is filled with counterfeits. It doesn't take long to find them. You can listen to what they teach on the airwaves. You can evaluate what they write. You can examine how they live. Well, God says that I will remove them because they are not truly connected to me and I will cast them out. Now we get into the continuation of this. Let's read together verses 7 through 11 and this will be the new information that we have today. Jesus continues and says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And we see this recurring theme about abiding and remaining, about loving and obeying in this farewell discourse. And it continues all the way through. But what we're looking at here is Roman numeral 2 of our outline is the blessing of fruitfulness. Now not only is there this spiritual character that is developed, and not only is there this life change that takes place through us as we begin to live a life that reflects this new spiritual character through our spiritual conduct, there is this blessing of fruitfulness. The first blessing is, number one, answered prayer. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, that does not mean that God has given you a blank check to pray anything you want, and based upon John 15, 7, He is obligated to give it to you. Now I'll tell you, there's no shortage of people out there who will use a verse like this and say, see right there, if I dream big, if I pray big, if I, like last week, enlarge my, my vision, and if I develop my self-esteem, then God is going to give me all these things that I ask for as if God is this cosmic Santa Claus who's just going to fill our lives with every material thing that He probably desires to prune out of our life. How inconsistent would it be if Jesus were to say, do not love the world or the things of the world, and yet we pray for all the things of the world? God says, well, John 15, 7, Jesus said it, i got to do it. I don't have a choice in the matter. This is not a blank check. This is not carte blanche. This is not an obligation by God to give you anything you ask for. There are some conditions that are woven into this verse. There's three that we're going to look at. Letter A, we are to ask in His name. Now, you don't see that phrased right here in verse 7, but this is an expansion of what Jesus introduced in John 14, verses 13 and 14, at the beginning portion of this same farewell discourse. And here's what He says in John 14, verses 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, okay, all i got to do then is to ask for a new car in the name of Jesus and He's going to give it to me, right? Isn't that what you mean? That's not what it means at all. Verse 7, asking in His name is implied from the context of the entire discourse, we can't pick and choose a singular verse to make it say what we want it to say. We have to read it in its proper context. So to ask in His name means that we ask according to His person and His will so that the Father is glorified in what the Son gives. Now, is God going to be glorified in a 2020 Cadillac Escalade with every bell and whistle? I don't know, maybe. But is God going to be more glorified by a heart that is sensitive to the needs of people, 
to the lostness of the world, to the hopelessness with which the world lives? Is God not not more glorified by that life being changed than you and I riding in the Mac Daddy of all SUVs? I think He would be more glorified in our ability to be used by Him, to be a hand or a foot, a tool that God uses to bear fruit through us into the life of another person. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a big car. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having nice stuff. But the content of our prayer is to be consistent with this person and his will for us. The context of expecting Jesus to give us anything we ask of him is prefaced by it being consistent with who he is and with his will for us. Now, I don't know what Jesus rode around in in his days, from what I understand. It was mostly just the soles of his feet. He didn't have the greatest chariot or wagon or prettiest horses or any of that kind of stuff. He was just a simple man who lived out his life in faithful obedience to the call of the Father. Now, two other conditions that we're going to look at are found precisely within the verse 7 that we're looking at. Letter B, we are to abide in Him. Jesus says, if you abide in Me... Now, we can think of that as an if-then clause, if you abide in me, then I will give you whatever you ask. But that's probably not the best way to look at it. The better way of looking at it, in my opinion, is that since you are abiding in me and you are asking for things that are consistent with my name and according to my will, I will give to you these things that I am asking. Now, if you have to remember that as a part of this farewell discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, but he is also preparing them for the apostolic ministry that they are going to begin after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So do you think that in the context of an apostolic ministry, there are going to be lots and lots of things that disciples are going to be praying to Jesus for? Yeah, And Jesus is saying in advance, I will give these things to you. I will give you the strength to endure. I will give you the patience to love. I will give you the ability to speak. I will give you the words to say, even though you don't understand what you're saying, you will be my vessel. I will speak through you. And oh, by the way, through your lives, I'm going to turn the world upside down. Did that happen? It absolutely did. I am convinced that as Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, brought back these promises to the apostles, they must have said, thank you, thank you, thank you that you're giving to me these things that I'm asking for because I so desperately need them and bearing fruit in my life. The result of this union that we have in Christ, this abiding in Him, comes from our salvation, but it really goes way beyond that. The result of our union with Christ through salvation should be to live a life that desires first and foremost to honor Him. God, may my life honor You in some way. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, do you think Paul prayed that, wrote that, so it would kind of be a catchy saying for us in the 21st century? Or do you think he wrote that and said that and prayed that because that was his heartbeat? I don't want to be the one that lives life through this earthly vessel. I want you to live your life through me so that my life will honor you. We do that by living with this openness. We don't live in continual sin. We fellowship with God in His Word and in prayer. We surrender to His will. We actively serve Him and fellowship with other believers. To abide in Him doesn't mean that we just claim our salvation, but it It intimates that there is this very intimate connection 
That is birth from salvation that is lived out in the context of this love relationship. Now, the third condition that we have in this answered prayer letter C is his words in you. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, can you separate that? Can we just put a parenthesis around this and my words abide in you and just call Jesus to task over this if you abide in me? No, you can't do that. Why? Because our abiding in him is demonstrated through his words abiding in us. This speaks of a life that is driven and directed by the words of Christ. You know, it's not uncommon for Christians to ravenously turn to God's Word when they're in the midst of a deep, dark crisis. Isn't that right? Oh God, what am I going to do? Speak to me through your Word. I don't know where my Bible is, but I know it's going to be good when I find it. So when God's words abide in us, it means that the Word of God is actively and continually shaping and molding us in the life that we live. This is a life that is consistently striving to obey what God has revealed to them. It's a life that wants to bear fruit. It's a life that cooperates with God's pruning. Now, I don't think that plants can feel or talk or anything else, but when we go out there in a few weeks with the hedge trimmers and we approach those plants, if they could talk, what do you think they would say? Oh no, ow, this is going to hurt. I don't want to go through this, right? This is the way it is for you and I today. We don't like to be pruned. Pruning is uncomfortable. It's unwelcomed. It sometimes brings about sacrifices that seemingly are inconvenient. And so you and I, by our nature, are going to resist pruning. But when God's Word is abiding in us, we cooperate with the pruning. I believe that this third condition of prayer is probably where we fail more often and why our requests aren't given to us. Perhaps our lives aren't as driven by God's word as we think they are. So we see this warning in Psalm 66, verse 18. The psalmist writes, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We read this in James 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Why? So that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, those who preach the uh, prosperity gospel message, the health and wealth theology, this is exactly where their heart is. They are asking so they can spend it on their pleasures. So when this is true of us, when we have cherished sin in our heart, when we're asking God, we're naming it and claiming it, because we want to spend it on on these worldly pleasures, when this is true of us, Our asking isn't as noble as we think it is. What we're asking for isn't as necessary as perhaps we've convinced ourselves that it is. But Jesus says that if we remain in his love and his words remain in us, we can ask him for whatever we want and he will give it to us. I believe that that is centered on the development of spiritual character and spiritual conduct. That does not mean that God won't meet our needs. It does not mean that God won't go beyond the meeting of our needs. And oh, by the way, God has far gone beyond the meeting of our needs, has He not? Don't we have a whole lot more than we really need to make it through this life? We're convinced we need a little bit more and life would be better if we get it. So the requests that are made when we are remaining in His love and His Word is remaining in us, These requests will be God-focused, they'll be God-glorifying, and they will be God-pleasing requests. So the second blessing of fruitfulness is the Father's glory. We see this in verse 8a. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Do you think there's a coincidence between this 
ask in my name and the bearing of fruit that the Father is going to be glorified in? Do you think there's a coincidence that those verses are connected the way they are? Absolutely not. There is no coincidence in Scripture. This is the prerequisite of what it is we ask for. We ask so the Father is glorified in the bearing of fruit. What we are to be consumed by and our request before the Lord are those things that are going to increase fruit production in our life. So as we think about the Father's glory, we need to be reminded that the greatest theme in all of the universe is the glory of God. The glory of God speaks of the honor and the praise that is due Him because of His worthiness, because of His position, and because of His power. We read in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. You know, we use these words like glory and honor and splendid and magnificent, but they're really inadequate to, to fully describe the worthiness of the Lord. He is beyond man's wildest comprehension. There just aren't enough words in our dictionary to accurately and completely describe what the glory of the Lord is really like. We saw a veiled image of the glory of Christ in His life when there was the transfiguration and the glory of the Lord shone on Jesus and James and Peter and John saw that. It was a veiled image of the full radiance of the glory of God. They saw that little bit and they said, hey, this is pretty good. We want some more of this. You know, we, we like to be around this. Well, that's right. Because the glory of God is unbelievable. Our minds can't even begin to understand what it's going to be like. But think about this. Our life has the ability to bring glory and honor to the God of this universe. The holy, righteous, glorious God who is perfect in all of His attributes, who is powerful in His creation, who is merciful in His redemption. He can be glorified through this sin-sick, sin-cursed life that you and I live in this dark and dreary world. The highest calling and the most blessed experience that you and I can ever have in our life is to see the Father glorified in us. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the truth of that statement. That we would never fail to recognize the worthiness of the God that you are. Well, since you and I cannot bear fruit of ourselves, the fruit that is born through our life is always, always going to glorify the Father. Anytime anyone ever compliments you or blesses you, or pats you on the back for your character or your conduct that reflects and represents Christ, all of the praise, all of the honor, all of the glory goes to God. Because you and I cannot bear that fruit apart from Him. The third blessing of fruitfulness is the proof of faith. We see this in verse 8b. And so if we abide in Him and His words remain in us, ask whatever you wish. This brings glory to the Father that you bring fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the fruit that we produce, excuse me, the fruit that is produced in and through us is evidence that we belong to Him. If there is no fruit, then there is no belonging to Him. We talked about this in greater detail last week, but we can't be fooled by the outward appearance of fruit. Fruit is spiritual character and it's spiritual conduct at its heart. Just because somebody has a church of 5,000 doesn't mean that they're bearing fruit. They could be, but it's not an automatic guarantee. Don't be fooled just by the outward evidence 
We have to look at the character and the conduct. And this is what proves that we belong to Him. It verifies that we are truly connected to the source of spiritual life, that we are in Him, and that He is in us. Now, there are people who come to their rock bottom and they clean their lives up some. Maybe they quit smoking or they quit drinking or they quit running around. They, they do something and it looks like fruit and it's spiritual in the sense that it's consistent with a basic understanding of morality. But if there is not the spiritual character, if there is not this transformation of life in who we are and what we do, more than likely it is counterfeit. It is not the real thing. In a world of false professions of faith, in a world of very, very shallow Christianity, we can know that we belong to Him because of the fruit that is being produced in and through our lives. We can't do that on our own. It only comes through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who changes who we are and changes what we do as we cooperate with the pruning that he brings into our lives. The fourth blessing of fruitfulness is confident love. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So let me ask you this question. How has the Father loved the Son? He's loved him completely. He has loved him perfectly. It's amazing to me to think that Jesus had absolute certainty about the Father's love for him as he is on the eve before his crucifixion preparing his disciples for his departure. In the face of the cross, Jesus never ever doubted the Father's love for him. He was going to suffer unthinkable pain at the hands of sinful men Yet he was confident of God's love. He was rejected and despised. He was mocked and ridiculed by his own people. But he never had a doubt about the way the Father loved him. Well, how has the Son loved the disciples? He's loved them completely. He's loved them perfectly. He has guided them and nurtured them and protected them and provided for them. And now he is about to go to the cross for them. Do you think the disciples knew that Jesus loved them? Do you think they wondered or they doubted that Jesus really cared about them? When Jesus taught that there was a need for a spiritual union with him that was symbolized through the drinking of his blood and the eating of his flesh, this is after the breaking of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000. It was a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper that he has just inaugurated. When he had come to that point in his ministry and taught that unless you drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you have no part of me, the masses began to flee. They said, this is difficult. Who can follow this? And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, do you want to leave also? And here's the response from Peter in John 6, 68, 69. Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That was a lot more than just who he was but it was the proof and the evidence and the demonstration that who he claimed to be is actually who he was in the way that he loved them. In Matthew, at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus predicted that Peter and the others were going to fall away from him, and on that night they were going to scatter, we, record, we see in Matthew 26, Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing to you. You know why they said that? Because they knew Jesus loved them, and they loved Him too. I would imagine that there are many, many, many within the church that would say to their pastor, Well, I'm pretty sad you're going to die, but don't count me in. 
I didn't sign up for that. I'm glad you're going to go to heaven, but I'm not going to die with you. But the disciples said, we will die with you. Because they knew Jesus loved them. As Jesus is preparing them for his departure, their lives are being turned upside down. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know what's going to happen to them. And Jesus says in John 14, 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In just a few short hours, they would recognize to the fullest extent the kind of love that Jesus had for them when he would go to the cross and die as a ransom and the propitiation for their sin, even though they didn't understand it at the time, they would come to know what it was that Jesus had done for them. And oh, by the way, all but one died a martyr's death, secure in the love that God has for them. Do you have a confidence in God's love? People say, I hope God loves me. I'm going to try harder so that God will love me. I'm going to do more so God will find favor on me. What we need to know is the blessing of fruitfulness as we see God producing spiritual character and spiritual conduct in us. It is an absolute certainty as evidence of God's love. Well, Jesus tells them how they can remain in his love. So we can say, God, I know you love me. God, I know I can look at the cross and see the greatest expression of love. But here in my own little world, here down on earth, with all the problems that I face, sometimes I wonder if you really love me. I've got questions about how much you love me. Well, the way that we can stay closely connected to His love is through obedience. Now wait a minute. You're piling on there. That's not fair. But that's exactly what Jesus has said. Verse 10. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. Just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Don't understand this as an if-then clause, but as a since you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. This isn't talking about earning God's love. This is talking about living a life in such a way that we are always confident about His love for us, and that confidence is expressed through willing obedience. This is a recurring theme through the discourse. This love and obedience. We saw this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Loving Jesus will result in keeping his commands. Here in verse 10, he says the same thing, but only in reverse. Keeping his commandments results in remaining in his love. It's part and parcel. You can't separate the two. This loving and this obeying is inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. And so what that means is, when we are choosing not to obey, we're choosing not to remain in His love. We are choosing not to remain in His love when we choose not to obey. To love is to obey. To obey is love. And the model for this is how Jesus has obeyed the Father and remained in His love. Jesus said this throughout the Gospel of John over and over and over again. I do what the Father shows me. I say what the Father tells me. I go where the Father directs me. I do what the Father tells me to do. And I do that because I love Him and He loves me. It is an inseparable Union, this love and obedience. Just as Jesus was confident in the Father's love for us, we can be confident in Jesus' love for us, and we will never understand that better than when we are walking in obedience with Him. 
when we don't walk in obedience with the Lord, we take a veer from the path. And we can go a long, 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 long way away from God's desired will for us. But if we say we love Him, we're going to stay as close to that path as we possibly can. And in doing so, we prove his love, our love for Him and we experience His love for us in this mutual loving and obeying. Now, the fifth blessing from fruitfulness is an overwhelming joy. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, what things? Love and obedience, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. His joy can be our joy. Think about that. The joy that Jesus had in His union with the Father, the joy that He had in obedience and in service to the Father is the same joy that He is promising to those who live a life of love and obedience with Him. Now remember, Jesus is saying this on the eve of the cross. His joy is full even though He knows in less than 12 hours He's going to be on the cross dead. The cross in no way defines or determines Jesus' joy in His life. Let me say that again. The cross does not define or determine Jesus' joy in his life. Now let's pause there for just a second and say this. Our hardship, our struggle, our difficulty, our suffering is not to define or determine our joy in life. Jesus' joy was found in his union with the Father and his joy was found in living out a life of obedience before the Father. He promises us His joy and says that our joy can be made full. You know what full is, right? Full is, I can't add another drop or it's going to spill out. Our joy can be so full that we can't imagine how we could ever be more joyful than we currently are. Joy speaks of an inner gladness. It is a deep-seated pleasure. It is a cheerful heart that leads to a cheerful life. Now there are at least three elements of the believer's joy. Letter A, joy is not dependent. Dependent joy is happiness. Dependent joy is consistent with what the world experiences. I'm happy because I've got a job. I'm happy because I've got a raise. I'm happy because my car is running. I'm happy because. Well, for a Christian, we are happy because we are filled with the joy of the Lord, period, not because of. Joy is not dependent. The joy that God provides overrides all that is happening in our life. Even the most difficult circumstances that we might find ourselves in, our joy is to be made full. Now, it's easy for us, and in fact, it is natural for us to focus on the challenges of life, the things that we don't like, the things that we wish could go away. And like Tony likes to allude to, you could be in the most beautiful place in all the world, and there could be a big splatted bug on your windshield, and all you can see is that bug. You can't see the beauty of the scenery around you. You can't marvel at the wonder of God's creation. All you can see is that bug. That is what is natural for us. As we focus on these things that we don't like in our lives, it is easy for us and it is natural for us to lose sight of the joy that is ours in Christ. Now to see one of the most comprehensive examples of a life that is filled with joy I believe we look no further than the Apostle Paul. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about his call to ministry as an apostle. 
And as he is doing this, you see not only the reason that he does what he does, but you also see a stark contrast between Paul's experiences and the spiritual reality he chooses for himself. This is a bit lengthy. Follow along on the screen. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 through 10. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Paul's approach to ministry. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God and much endurance and, and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and, excuse me, and labors and sleeplessness and in hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit, and genuine love, and the word of truth, and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet Possessing all things. Holy cow! I would have given up a long, long time ago when you said, God, this is too hard. God, this isn't what I expected. God, this isn't what I want. Can't you carve out for me a nice, smooth, easy path where I can smell the roses and I can see the sunset and I can see the glory of all that you are? Well, maybe for a moment. But as you peak that hill, you're going to go back down into a valley. Why? Because I want to prune you for greater, greater fruitfulness. Paul had a supernatural commitment to obeying the commands of Christ. Paul remained intimately and deeply connected to the source of the spiritual life. He abided in Christ the words of Christ abided in him, and that enabled him to maintain a spiritual posture of joy in some of the most difficult experiences we could ever imagine facing. Letter B, joy is divine. It is possessed and given only by God. Again, don't confuse happiness with temporary circumstances and a joy that can't be quenched. Joy isn't something that we can produce in ourselves. It is a byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. An example of this is in Acts chapter 5. So Gamaliel is telling the Pharisees not to kill these, uh, these disciples who are preaching Jesus. So they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That's not a spanking. That's getting beaten within an inch of your life and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So then they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. My friend, that is not natural. That is supernatural. That is divine joy that is there because of this intimate union with Christ. It isn't natural to rejoice in being beaten within an inch of your life but it is spiritual to maintain a posture of joy in the midst of great difficulty and hardship. Letter C, joy is hopeful. We know that God is always at work. We know that God is working out for our good all things. God works out all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We know that He has a divine plan we know that He allows these things in our life. We know that this life is not the end-all, be-all for us. Isn't that right? Do you need to remind yourself of that? This is not the end of it all. This is merely the training ground for the fullness of experiencing the glory of God. There's a joyful hope in knowing that there is an eternal future that awaits us and this hope should fill our hearts and our minds with an incredible joy. We read from 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. Our joy is rooted in our union with Christ. It is found by staying closely connected to God's love through obedience. We can have the joy of Jesus and that joy can be made full. We're going to pause here. We're going to pick up next week as Jesus begins to talk specifically about what obeying His commands look like. But for the here and now, thinking about bearing fruit, seeing something spiritual produced in my life and through my life, recognizing that we cannot produce that by ourselves, the question is, how closely are we staying connected to the source of spiritual life? How are we abiding in Him? How are His words abiding in us? And are we able to experience the blessing of fruitfulness that comes from our union with Him? Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that as imperfect as we are, You still love us with an absolute perfect love. Father, thank you that in your love and because of your love, you desire to prune our lives so that we can bear more fruit. To see spiritual character developed within us, to see a life that has been radically changed and transformed by our salvation, to see our conduct changed, to see us blessed with the ability to make a difference in the lives of other people. God, I pray that that would stir up within us a hunger that we've never had before in our walk with you. That as we look back and evaluate our life, we would desire to see you being glorified through this life that we live as your child here on this earth. God, I pray that as we see fruit, as we see apples and bananas and pears and oranges and other things, it would be a continual reminder of what it is you desire to do in us. May you have your way in every heart and every life. May we be willing to bow before you and allow you to mold us and shape us into who you want us to be. That is our prayer. May you be glorified in the lives that we live as a result of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.